Hey, cats and kittens, as Carol Baskins once famously said, this is Patrick, and welcome back for another episode of Dark and Devious. gosh Patrick I had to restrain myself from laughing when you when you said your intro today <laughs> yeah um I was gonna say like hey guys but then I uh, like in my in my head I always try to not to I don't like using the word guys to talk about a group of people even though it's very commonly said um I prefer to say like folks or y'all just because <laughs> I mean just because you know some people very don't. southern of you it and is. inclusive <laughs> uh-huh well I do it to be inclusive and I guess it's yeah some of the country is still in me um <laughs> uh, but yeah but then like in mid-sentence I was like internally I was like thinking I can't say guys because it's something I don't like to do and then just cats came out and then kittens came out and I was like Carol Baskins <laughs> Yes, lest we forget that phenomenon that uh, that swept the nation and the world last year of the Tiger King. It's so funny. I've still never seen it, and I I don't. I think I will probably survive if I never do. But you'll survive. But you're definitely missing some like serious comedy at the unfortunate expense of other people because <laughs> the people in that show are just the class the yeah the classiest <laughs> exaggerate there yeah i feel like i am maybe missing out on a cultural touchstone just a little bit so i don't know it's still not super high on my priority list but maybe i'll let maybe i'll sneak in an episode sometime and and just watch at least one just for the the cultural knowledge aspect of it. <laughs> sure, so you can like finally get all those jokes and... Right. I mean, I get it. Everybody thinks that Carol Baskin fed her husband to a tiger. Like, that's pretty easy to get. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, the thing is that documentary, not only does it like show Carol Baskin and her wildness, but Joe Exotic who's like the real loose screw in that show. He's just like off the walls. All right, you may have tempted me to check this show out, at least for an episode. I feel like that's famous last words, but like, okay, I guess I'll watch one episode and then like three hours later, you're binging the whole series. That's usually how it goes, right? Uh-huh. Yeah, I've been like, so, it's actually like now really really nice out but I got really spoiled when I went down to, to Texas a few weeks ago because it was so warm down there and we came up here and like ever since then it was just kind of like a little dark a little dreary and a little chilly like 
not cold, but for me personally, not like comfortable outside. Uh, where nowadays it's very, very nice. Like I'm wearing shorts and a t-shirt. So it's great. Um, right. I am currently wearing a tank top. This is the first, this is my inaugural tank top of the, of 2021, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I, I sometimes wear tank tops. Um, I prefer more of just like a high, like a real high short sleeve with a, with a V-neck. I don't know. I don't, I don't think I can pull off the whole tank top look. You, you definitely could, but whatever, <laughs> each their own. Yep. Um, so I just want to give a shout out to, um, Sweden and New Zealand, um, because I discovered today that we have listeners there. So thanks. Thanks folks for coming in. Um, I love that you found us. I love that our, our deviants are dutifully doing their duties and, uh, you know, giving That's us ratings. A lot of these. <laughs> mm-hmm. The triple Ds. That I know that is so cool. I, I wish that it broke it down. I know we were talking about this before we started recording that I wish it broke it down by what episode they listened to so we could see which episodes were drawing people from what countries and, and, you know, just to see what is drawing their attention. Uh, but it's definitely, it's so cool to, to know that we have such an international audience and that people are finding us like still new people. And, you know, we may still just be a, a little, little baby podcast still, but uh, we are growing and, new people are finding us. I think that's super cool. It, it is. And yeah, like we are, we're, we're super small as far as podcasts go. Like we're like, <laughs> we're like a, a speck on the, <laughs> on the map. Um, but it, it's just, it's just really, it's really cool. And it, it makes, it makes me feel an odd sense of like joy. Yeah. Like this is our baby. <laughs> I was going to say, and, and just like connection to the world, because, you know, I'm like, some of our listeners are people that we know, but when you're, you know, kind of reaching out to strangers in other countries and somehow like making those connections, I, it's that really cool about how the world is really big, but it's also really small. It is. And then like on, for the Facebook page, uh, which have you, if you all have not checked it out, it's just dark and devious. Um, and it's on Facebook, obviously. Uh, and like all the time I'm getting notifications on there, like you have new likes, you have uh, new follows. And that's just really neat too, because I mean, we don't, I tried to find a way that you could like look to see who likes your page, but you can't do that. So oh. I, I like the, I like the mystery of knowing for sure that like it's, it's our friends and family, but it could also be people that we have no idea who you are, so that's fun. And and also, if you're hesitant about like following pages, please follow ours because we won't spam you with content all the time. Like, I I know sometimes it's like, oh well, I don't want to get a notification like every other minute that, you know, that like some pages will. Um, we only well, we usually just post something related to the case of the week. 
maybe throw in a little humor, relevant humor here and there. Yeah, I mean, it's it's usually one post a week, yeah. at max two. And <laughs> so that's... don't so don't let that stop you from from liking our page. <laughs> yeah. Uh, any anything new? Anything exciting we need to share or talk about though? I don't know. I just I've been oh, um, I've been spending a lot of time with my partner this week, and uh, I finally got to meet his dog. Ooh. Did the dog like you? Because that's... The dog is very skittish. She's grow. I'm growing on her, I think. She's she's probably still more at the tolerating me phase because I just met her. Like, actually, literally, I just met her last night. Because it's funny because actually she was a naughty girl and she got out. And so my partner had to go and help chase her down and luckily everything was okay but I was like well if you want to bring her over I'd be okay with that plus I just really really wanted to meet this dog after seeing pictures and hearing all about her and she is so cute I cannot wait until I get in good with this dog and uh I can cuddle her because she's so like she's little white and fluffy um i'll have to ask again what kind of breed of dog (laughs) she's kind of like a shina ibu is that how you say it yeah shina ibus i love shina ibus are so freaking cute she has kind of like a little bit of that quality uh because she is actually adopted from korea okay he's uh She's got some of that look to her and yeah, she's so cute. I can't wait. I, I did get permission to give her French fries or cheese to bribe her to loving me. Mm-hmm. So I might have to, I might have to do that. Maybe try and get a little, get in good with her. Yeah. So that's very exciting. I really like having a dog around. <laughs> yeah I mean we have we have a dog as well and similar um my husband had the dog before we had gotten together and also he was a re- it's a rescue dog and he doesn't trust any strangers except like people at doggy daycare <laughs> um like he loves those people even if he doesn't know them yet but funny um but yeah so same thing it was a really slow warming process with me um and now he you know after years with him he loves me and like like this morning we went on like an hour and a half walk together and oh that sounds beautiful especially how it is today I mean I saw that there was this joke that somebody had posted about how about living in Minnesota and how like for the month of May everybody is like oh my gosh this is why I live here and like it's so perfect this whole month is just so wonderful. And then like the whole summer is just like, it's hot, it's humid. Why do I live here? And then it's September and it's like, I love living here so much. And then it's like winter. (laughs) So it's like one of the two months that everyone is like, oh my gosh, it's perfect here in Minnesota. Yeah, that's where I'm the outlier because I'm like, May isn't warm enough. And then all (laughs) of summer, I'm like living it. It's my jam. And then- once fall settles in, I'm like, it is freezing. 
<laughs> I don't belong here. <laughs> <laughs> to each their own, I guess. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, oh, another cool thing from this last week is I finally got my bar situation in order. So I'm going to have to have you over for a cocktail sometime. Yes, please. Yeah. Because my uh, my parents said they've been working really hard on this old record radio console from the 40s that belonged to my great aunt. And um, my dad installed these cool wine racks underneath in the storage under uh, like where the records would go. And uh, yeah, just got it all nice and cleaned up and they got a nice piece of glass for the top and it looks so good. So I've got this beautiful new bar set up in my apartment. It's perfect. I love it. So I'll have awesome. to yeah, come on. Well, I'm looking there. forward to a cocktail or three in, <laughs> in the near future. That sounds awesome. Well, are we ready to uh, get down and dirty and devious with our case today? Yeah, just as dirty as Christina was in 2002. <laughs> Did you seriously, like, just <laughs> randomly mention 2002? Because that's the year that this case takes place. Shut up. I am not even joking. I, that is, because I didn't tell you, I didn't telegraph anything. No. About this case to you. We never do. That's like one of the joys of doing this. But hang on. I'm looking up when Dirty by Christina Aguilera actually came out. <laughs> um, because if it is also in 2002, that would be amazing. Oh my gosh. 2002. Ah! <laughs> this is phenomenal. I am so excited now. This is really the really funny. I can't believe that. I guess we we've got the 2002 vibes going. Uh, I was, I believe, 12 years old in 2002. <laughs> yeah, I would have been 13 or 14. So, yeah. Just imagine, like I was 14 preteen teenage versions of us you know definitely listening to dirty on the radio pretending that i was christina <laughs> not saying that's true but i'm not going to deny it <laughs> <laughs> and all with this background of this major case that i'm talking about today okay so. well i'm ready and i cannot wait to start all right let's dive in so to, today I'm going to talk about a case that is very vivid in my memory from when I was a kid and it still sticks in my memory today. So the case was so surprising and shocking, it put the whole country and especially the nation's capital on edge. Today we're talking the 2002 DC sniper attacks, also known as the Beltway sniper attack. I remember this. Yes. And it's one of those ones where like, it's kind of in that same timeline of, of like really vivid, awful news stories where it's like 
you know, the DC sniper. And I feel like there was just a lot of really, oh, and like the anthrax attack, like through the mail, like all this stuff happening in a period of like two or three years that just makes this time period really vividly stick out in our memories. So the, the story seemingly begins in early October of 2002 and comes to a head just 22 days later. But as more of the puzzle came together, the perpetrators were actually linked to shootings in seven states, aside from their reign of terror across Virginia, Maryland, and the District of Columbia. So the reign of terror began surprisingly with a near miss. On October 2nd, 2002, a sales clerk at a Michael's craft store in Aspen Hill, Maryland, which is just under 30 miles from Washington, DC. So the, the, um, the sales clerk, her name is Ann Chapman and she was working the cash register. At about 5.20 p.m., a bullet whizzed past Chapman, pierced an advertisement, and ricocheted off a rack of inspirational prayer books. Talk about someone watching out for you, right? Yeah, that seems very coincidental. In the Los Angeles Times, she was quoted as, say as saying, dang, that was awfully close, which I <laughs> think is an understatement. It's just like, oh, you know, that bullet just breezed past me. Just another day at the store. Yeah. Also, who knew that you would be risking your life working at a Michael's craft store? Like, <laughs> it just doesn't seem to be something that you would ever think would happen. So what transpired seemed to be a random isolated event. No one was killed or injured, so little attention was paid to this isolated incident at first. But then as the shooting spree continued, it became clear that this was the start of a nightmare, the likes of which the, which the area had never seen. An hour later at approximately 6.30 PM, James Martin, a 55 year old program analyst at NOAA, that's the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration uh, and I, I was kind of like, what do they do again? Um, uh, I know them as like NOAA weather radar. Right. They do some weather climate stuff, uh, but they're actually part of the Department of Commerce. Uh, and they also do a lot of research to um, improve the understanding and stewardship of the environment. So there, if you ever are doing bar trivia and you need to know what NOAA stands for, now you know. Yeah, the more you know, brought to you by NBC. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, can we say that or are we going to get sued? <laughs> no one knows what NBC stands for in this context. <laughs> okay. We can speculate on other acronyms for that later. Yes. So James Martin was shot and killed while he was loading groceries into his car in the parking lot of a shopper's food warehouse in Wheaton, Maryland, which was only five miles away from the Michaels store in Aspen Hill. So Martin, like this is so incredibly sad because Martin had been shopping for groceries for his church, as well as an elementary school mentoring program 
in Washington, D.C. at the time he was killed. So seriously, how do these killers seem to always find the, the kindest victims? It just isn't fair. No. Just the fact that he was doing something so nice. The next morning, the carnage continued. At 7.41 a.m. the following day, a 39-year-old landscaper named James L. Buchanan, I assume the L is to set him apart from the president, just in case anybody got confused. <laughs> right. Uh, he was shot while mowing the grass at the Fitzgerald Auto Mall, a car dealership in Rockville, Maryland. So James, or Sonny as he was known, was the owner of a lawn design business but he still occasionally provided landscape services to some of his clients. So again, another super sad coincidence that he normally wouldn't have been out there mowing the grass. Yeah. He was busy running his, his business, but he was doing this, you know, as a courtesy to one of his clients. Um, So we'll see this with a lot of the victims that they were just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Well, I mean, with anything like a like a sniper situation, that that's how it goes, you know, because they don't have it. I mean, they usually don't have like intended targets when they're just shooting at random. Exactly. So it's and just about who's there, who can I hit? Yeah. And, who's a vulnerable target? Uh huh. Who won't see this coming? Right. And, and that's just, I, and that's the thing that really just terrified this whole region was that there was no telling who was going to be next or where they would show up next. Mm-hmm. Because as we'll, we'll see, um, as we continue talking about the case, is that there weren't regular intervals, there weren't regular types of targets, uh, and they covered a wide area. And that, that makes it the scariest of all. So the, the killer seemingly could strike anywhere at any time. Uh, Sunny, uh, side note that Sonny volunteered with the Boys and Girls Club. So uh, his family had actually, you know, in the wake of his, his killing, they established a charity called Sonny's Kids that helped underprivileged kids pay for their college education. So I thought that was like a really nice note to add in there that uh, even though he's not around anymore, there's still good being done in his name. Um, and I, and that's, pro- that's definitely what he'd want. He seems like the type of person that, you know, would want to continue to help. You know, if he can't help physically, he wants, he would help somehow. Right. Which is why it's really hard to find a silver lining in these cases, but you know, at least we can we can pull out these threads of. Um, it's it's really important, I think, to take tragedy and and use that as motivation to do more good in the world. And mm-hmm. it sounds like his family definitely uh, picked up where he left off and continued to do good, do good in the world. Yeah, for sure. About a half hour later. At 8.12 a.m., a 54-year-old taxi driver named Prem Kumar Walikar was shot at a mobile gas station in Aspen Hill. He had started his workday extra early that day in hopes of taking part of 
of uh, like, it was a beautiful day out. Um, so he was hoping to get out and enjoy the weather, but his plans were interrupted by the sniper's bullet as he filled his gas tank. Apparently he was actually planning on retiring soon so he could go back to India and be with family. So it's just another heart-wrenching situation where it, it's like the, you know, the police officer who like, ah, he gets, you know, shot right before retirement or it kind of seems like the same kind of situation where like, you're so close to just being like, having the rest of your life free to just do whatever you want. Like you won't have to work anymore. And then to have that taken away, at, ripped away from you at the last minute. Yeah. And, or like you hear about like people are on their way home and then they go missing like a block from their house. Oh it's yeah. Like, you're so close to being safe and then life just gets ripped away from you. Another half hour or so passed. And at 8.37 a.m., Sarah Ramos, a 34-year-old babysitter and housekeeper, was seated on a bench outside the Leisure World Shopping Center in Norbeck, Maryland. Ramos was waiting for an employer to pick her up and was reading a book when she was killed. It's hard to believe that a more innocent victim could be found. It was almost as if the killer was trying to find the softest targets he could possibly find which was really the most cowardly way to kill. Ramos had immigrated from El Salvador with her husband, only to, only to be the victim of gun violence in America. I know a lot of times people will immigrate from some of these small Central and South American countries because they're fleeing violence and to come to America where you feel like I'll be safer there and then only to have this happen to to her. Is... Yeah, it's it's not, I mean, it's not fair to have gun violence anywhere, but then exactly. when someone is fleeing a dangerous situation in hopes that things will be better, and then, you know, the worst case scenario happens, that's just, it's right. heartbreaking. And that's why, I mean, people come to America because they want safety and stability and to have that again another it's like an american dream snuffed out it's mm -hmm. it just seems like the perpetrators were just kind of like twisting the knife of like all of these people in vulnerable situations and who were just living their lives like normal and she also had a uh, I believe she had a young son too. So could you imagine just like mom isn't coming home? So the killer then drove about six miles to Kensington, Maryland, where the next vi victim was selected. It was 9.58 a.m. now and 25-year-old Lori Ann Lewis Rivera was cleaning out her Dodge Caravan at a Shell gas station. She was a young mother and a professional nanny and lived in nearby Langley Park, Maryland with her husband and daughter. As she was vacuuming her car, she was struck with a single bullet and killed. In a period of less than three hours, four completely random innocent people were dead. And again, this must have just absolutely baffled authorities because 
all of these victims seemingly had nothing in common. They were different ethnicities. They were different um, situations. They were in different towns, different parts of the city. Uh, it really was just totally random. Cause I mean, I assume when you start a murder investigation, the first thing you start looking for is a motive. And these people I'm sure had nobody who like there was nobody who would like have a personal vendetta against them. So you're start starting off way farther behind than you would on a normal murder investigation. Yeah, and like this is only day two, right? So yeah, like, and so they're just beginning to realize the scope of yeah of this that, and I'm sure it it took a moment to realize oh, these are all strung together because they all have the same MO. Anyway, the killers that were not finished for that day. And at 9.20 PM, 72-year-old Pascal Charlot was out for a walk in the Shepherd Park neighborhood of Washington, DC. So this is right over the border between DC and Maryland. Um, so Silver Spring is kind of the first city right outside of Washington DC on this part. Okay. Um, and yeah, so it's basically like, basically your Silver Spring is right down the street. So Pascal was out walking to the bus station when he was struck with a bullet, but he did not die right away like many of the other victims but within an hour, he succumbed to his injuries. Just another normal person out doing their normal life, not expecting the worst. It's said that he had been a carpenter and even though he had retired, he often helped his friends and neighbors rehabbing their homes for free. What, what a good guy. Like, and still doing, doing like remodeling at an older age, he's 72. Yeah. And he, I mean, he probably was like a little bit bored. So he's like, oh, I'll just do this for free to help people out. But at the end of the day, it just came from, you know, being a good person. Right. And it's, it's kind of crazy to think that, oh, here's, here's the period in your life where you're supposed to be relaxing and taking it easy. But no, he was still going. And I think that's really commendable that he was making a difference in his friends and families, lives, uh, you know, up and up until his death. I think that that's incredible. So at the end of the first day, five people were dead. The chief of police in Montgomery County, Maryland, which is the jurisdiction where most of the murders took place. Uh, so the chief of police, Charles Moose, what uh, took charge of the initial investigation. He called on the FBI and many other law enforcement agencies to assist in the investigation. In fact, the FBI within days had over 400 agents around the country working the case. In a press announcement after the first round of deaths, Chief Moose pointed out that this was very unusual for the area and that it was usually a very safe community. And with that one day's worth of violence, the homicide rate 
had increased by 25%. Wow. So yeah, with just, what was that? Five, five, five deaths in one yeah. day. And that was a quarter of like a 25% increase in deaths in that area. That's crazy, especially for being right outside, like in a very metropolitan area. Yeah, I, I mean, that those numbers are surprising to me, which is kind of sad, you know, that we're surprised that that low number of people can be such a high percentage of violent crime in a city, uh, but that's the world we live in. Um, but yeah, I'm sure like that definitely piqued everyone's interest, you know, just that huge jump in numbers. They definitely were like on high alert. Yeah, I I can't imagine what that must have felt like. It, you know, it's it's a bad day when you get one call, I'm sure, of um, a murder. And then it's an extremely bad day when you get a string of them like that. I, I'm sure that they, they were stretched thin at, at trying to cover each individual location, especially because everyone, every single one of those locations, you have to secure the scene because you never know where that little piece of evidence is going to be uh, that will break the case wide open. And that's got to be really hard in these very public areas. Yeah. From the initial killings, the authorities were able to gather that all of these cases involved a high-powered rifle fired at a distance. The killer was obviously a very skilled marksman, and that caused great concern among law enforcement that they had a very methodical and well-trained criminal on the loose. Initially, an eyewitness to one of the killings described two people speeding away from one of the murder scenes in a white truck. The entire metropolitan area was combed for every vehicle that could possibly have matched the description as police stopped every white truck and van on the road, but found no suspects. The lack of suspects made the whole community uneasy and schools were put on lockdown and outdoor activities canceled, affecting 140,000 school children in the area. So no one had any idea who the perpetrators were or what motivated them to kill. It was the most dangerous race against the clock as every hour and every day the sniper remained free the more time they had to kill. Um, yeah, I was just thinking like when you're talking about how outdoor recesses were canceled, um, you know, there were people that, you know, were such as those children were, you know, uh, certain steps are being taken to ensure their safety. But then I was thinking like, what about these like poor people that have no choice, but they have to go out and like, so like public, public transport workers, um, you know, bank tellers, um, you know, store clerks, uh, traffic workers, you know, there's just so many people that probably did not want to go outside, but they're like, this is my job. I, I, I have to. Right. And, and that's the thing where like all of your daily routine puts you at risk every single time you step out of the house, 
you could be the next victim. And, and there were certainly a lot of people who feared even stepping outside because there, you know, of some of these, these victims were just minding their own business, going to work, going for a walk, gassing up their cars. Yeah, pumping up gas. Yeah, there was no way to 100% ensure that you would be safe anywhere, which is why it was so important to catch these perpetrators as quickly as possible. In the days that followed, the killers began to broaden their geographic scope and vary their timing. On October 4th, 62 miles to the south of Washington, D.C., 43-year-old Caroline Sewell was wounded in the chest at 2.30 p.m. as she loaded packages into her, her car in front of the Michaels store in the Spotsylvania Mall. Again, why Michaels? Why targeting Michaels parking lots? I don't, I don't answer to that, but I mean, I mean, parking lots of stores you know, you're going to have pedestrians and yeah. they'll, they will be distracted such as she was loading things into their car. Mm -hmm. And uh, I thought was very interesting is in, in some of my reading that uh, of the news coverage at the time that people came up, people were coming up left and right with their own theories as to who they were, who the killers were and who, and like what their motivation was. And one of my favorite ones was that they that somebody thought that it was some disgruntled Michael's employee that they were I, that that's why the uh, you know the Michael stores kept coming up in these in these shootings and which seemed really like a stretch but it just goes to show when people are confronted with a situation that doesn't seem to make sense they'll they'll put together their own theory in their mind to help make it make sense because that's the only way we can deal. Like, it's so hard to deal with the thought of this is just somebody killing random people for fun or whatever. Yeah, uh, it's human instinct to want a reason and an answer. Mm -hmm. So uh, Caroline Sewell, she was luckily only wounded. She, so she survived her attack. Um, despite the bullet piercing her back, her liver, one of her lungs, and her chest. She later described the feeling of knowing immediately that she had been shot. She then prayed to God that, she, um, that he would not let her die as she had a husband and two boys at home. It took nothing short of a miracle saving her life as it was testified later that the bullet had missed her heart by only a few centimeters. I, whenever I hear that, I'm always like, oh my goodness. Like, like whether it's the heart or like one of your major nerves in your spinal cord. Yeah, or like, like an artery or something. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's so scary, but so good to hear that. I mean, even though it was that close, it didn't, you know, actually wind up being fatal. Right. Uh, it's also so important in these cases to have living victim or like um, survivors that can testify against them when they're finally brought to justice because that 
those, I feel like those statements make a huge impact because it's so clear when a jury has to hear the, the testimony of like how this person's actions affected a living, breathing person. Yeah, yep. I, I think we all become a little desensitized when we're talking about a deceased victim. So when you get a, you get somebody who's been affected that can actually physically tell their story, it makes a huge impact. And uh, she was very brave and, uh, and strong and is just so lucky to be alive. So as the terror continued, and after the white truck theory had, had uh, borne no fruit, a new vehicle of interest began to surface. New reports of a blue Chevrolet Caprice began to surface, which would come up again and again at the crime scenes. Then on October 7th in Bowie, Maryland, about 20 miles northeast of Washington, DC, a 13-year-old middle schooler named Iron Brown was shot as he was dropped off for school by his aunt, Tanya Brown. Uh, what I think is really interesting, so I was talking about this case with my coworker, Ty. Shout out again to Ty. Hey, Ty, I was in the store um, yesterday and I was looking at name tags, hoping to find you, <laughs> uh, but I did not. So maybe someday. Uh, so Ty was telling me that, uh, that he grew up like right kind of close by to the, where this middle school is. Wow. And, and luckily at the time he was living in Chicago, but he still had family and stuff living in the area. So it was, it was, it was very interesting to hear a firsthand account of, of how friends and family of his were dealing with the, uh, the absolute terror of being in the area where the these snipers were active. Yeah, I, that would have been fascinating to get to talk to one of them. Yeah. Uh, so once again, this victim was extremely lucky. Uh, his aunt was able to get him quickly to the emergency room. And despite significant injuries to major organs, he lived. This was a major turning point in the case because at this crime scene, investigators found a shell casing as well as an ominous warning from the sniper, a tarot card, the death card, with the message, for you, Mr. Police, call me God, do not release to the press. The details, however, were made public by WUSA-TV, the Washington DC CBS affiliate, and later the Washington Post. So isn't that like, that's, I, I feel like that's kind of almost like a, like only happens in a movie, like, oh, they have the calling card and it's like a tarot card. And yeah, of course it's death. You know, what? It, it's almost like they were being a little cheesy about it. Yeah, it's like they're trying to be the Zodiac. Yeah. Who was like really skilled at writing uh, letters that they had to decipher to the police. Which wasn't one of them only just cracked recently? Yeah, yep, yeah. Is so wild. Yeah, so it's like, 
there's a right way to you know <laughs> to address the police and not right it's like come on be a little more mysterious yeah where's your creativity mr yeah. snipey snipe <laughs> the bloodshed continued and authorities were still perplexed on october 9th 53 year old dean harold myers was killed while pumping gas at a sunoco station near manassas virginia two days after that on october 11th 53 year old kenneth bridges was shot dead while pumping gas at an exxon station near fredericksburg virginia and three days later on the 14th of October, a 47-year-old FBI intelligence analyst named Linda Franklin was shot and killed in a Home Depot parking lot just outside Falls Church, Virginia. So this is crazy where it's like, you think that um, like the coincidence that this was an FBI person who was a victim. That's what I thought of too, as soon as you said that, because you said there were over 400 FBI employees working on this case. Yes, and I, I don't know if, it, if she was specifically tied to this case at all, but it, at, at first I was like, oh, that's so kind of spooky and almost seems deliberate that that was the case. But then you think, um, so because of all of the government employees that are employed in that area, so, basically all of like Northern Virginia, DC, Maryland, uh, there are so many government organizations that have huge workforces in those areas. The odds that you were gonna randomly hit a government employee is probably was actually probably pretty good. I mean, especially remember one of the early victims worked for NOAA. Uh, so it, it's like, okay, I guess that isn't necessarily so strange, but it definitely is an eerie coincidence. Uh, yeah, exactly. So uh, at the, the scene of this, uh, of the Linda, Linda Franklin's uh, murder, uh, police seemingly got a good lead from, from this attack as a man named Matthew Dowdy who was at the scene of the slaying claimed the shooter had dark hair and a mustache driving a cream colored van with a burned out taillight. This was the first time anyone had described the killer and the description was distributed to law enforcement. It turned out though that when the shooting occurred, Dowdy was actually inside the Home Depot and he couldn't have witnessed the shooting itself. And he was actually prosecuted for his false statement. He was fined $1,000 and jailed for six months for his incredible callousness for the public welfare. That's what the judge said. I don't understand why people do that. Why do people make up false statements of witnessing people or an incident? It's like, you're not like, why are you trying to meddle in this? I don't right? get if it. You, if you literally did not witness it firsthand, don't pretend like you did. Like there's, there's no sense because actually this wrong information could hinder the investigation. Like, 
and all and or even put somebody else in a dangerous position where like think of some random other person who fits this description who's totally innocent then gets arrested or you know who knows what could happen there's so many bad things that could result from that situation of some wrong someone being wrongfully accused um it's it's just really so awful and at the trial so i guess what he did was he pled no contest to this charge which and i was like what does that mean so he didn't deny that the evidence against him but he also didn't but also he, it was kind of like well i'm not gonna plead guilty but i'm not gonna deny the evidence against me so okay I was like, okay i'll just accept this and uh, I guess he had at the trial for that, that he had said something that some home, like a homeless woman that he knew ha had reported that description to him, but she was too afraid to go to the authorities. And so he passed that on. And I don't know, that seems like a pretty flimsy excuse. Uh, but also I, I guess I understand that at the time, like everyone probably wanted wanted to be the hero and everyone wanted an, there to be an end to this this shooting spree so maybe if that really is true i'm sure he had the best intentions but at the same time it, if you can't know for sure or at least put that kind of asterisk be like i heard from somebody that this is what happened yeah so that they could maybe use that as like, okay, well maybe we can broaden our search a little bit to include this description, but not like put that out as the official description. Um, it's, it seemed really fishy. Um, so lesson learned, don't go uh, giving descriptions of perpetrators if you don't know for sure. Like if, if it's secondhand information or, you know, you really didn't see it, don't go don't go filling in the details just stay out of it you don't need that much attention <laughs> then there was a lull in the killing for five days there were no new shootings still though the area remained on edge gas stations were putting up tarps to conceal their customers and the fox show america's most wanted devoted an entire episode to the case hoping to bring in the critical tips that would lead to an arrest. It is during this interlude on October 17th that authorities received a call from the supposed shooter who claimed responsibility for the murder of two women during a liquor store robbery in Montgomery, Alabama. This would later prove to be a big mistake on the killer's part. But then on October 19th, 37-year-old Jeffrey Hopper was shot in a parking lot of a Ponderosa Steakhouse in Ashland, Virginia, which is 90 miles south of Washington, D.C., by far the furthest from the epicenter uh, that the shooter had reached. Once again, luck and a quick response would save a potential victim's life, and Hopper survived his injuries. Around this attack, authorities found a four-page letter from the shooter in the woods 
that demanded $10 million and also threatened the lives of children. Like this is starting to get like really erratic and very, I, I feel like the demand for money, it almost seems to be an afterthought at this point because- Yeah, it, it really does because you think at like the second victim, that's when the person responsible would leave a note saying what they're doing, why they're doing it, and what the authorities can do to make them stop. And exactly. then it'd, it'd be like, if you don't give me the $10 million, I'm going to continue taking people out. And the fact that he wait or they waited so long to put out a demand, it's almost like they, it, it was a second thought. They're like, wait a minute, I can use this to my advantage. Yeah, or, that's or before what it, it feels like. Yeah, before it, it seemed like it was more like, I hate to say it, but like a hobby. You know, they're just yeah. going out and doing it, getting their, you know, their the good feelings from their sick game. And then they're like, oh, I, I can use this. Mm -hmm. But what's weird though is like, how do you expect this to play out? Like, there's no way that you're going to, like, what, they're just going to leave a big sack of money on the side of the road for you? And, like, not, they're not going to track it? Yeah, or they're not going to stake out somewhere and watch who comes and picks it up? Yeah, there's just no way. That's why these weird, that's why, like, ransoms are, like, the worst idea because there's no way you're going to, it's going to work out. It, like there's always a way to track the money. So behind the scenes, the FBI was busy putting together the pieces, but not before the shooter claimed one more life. 35 year old Conrad Johnson was shot on the steps of his bus in Aspen, Maryland. So here we are back to the epicenter uh, um, right outside of DC. However, Johnson would be the last victim thanks to some hard work from the FBI. Investigators picked up on the crime described in the phone call uh, that was from the supposed shooter. The, so the crime from Alabama? Yes. So okay. it was an Alabama liquor store robbery. Um, and so they found a case that, that matched the description that had happened on September 21st. So in the phone call, the shooter said, oh, you know, I shot these two women at a uh, liquor store or, or, or at a, during a robbery in Montgomery, Alabama, which is so weird. Like, why would you, why would you give the authorities any clues like that? I mean, I guess. I think it's be because a lot of times people with this mentality, they get kind of full of themselves. And I think they're saying like, look, I'm, I'm this person who is taking out civilians in your cities. And I've also done this other terrible thing where I killed two women in Alabama. I'm, I'm dangerous. I'm reckless. You're never going to catch me type thing. Yeah, it's sort of the whole taunting the authorities situation. Um, and what was interesting is in this case, actually, uh, one of those victims had survived. So he thought that he had killed them both, but he'd only killed one victim there. 
So ballistics and fingerprints from that crime scene were then handed over to the ATF, which is the Department of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms. Uh, so they were handed from the ATF to the FBI laboratory. The FBI fingerprint database got a match from a magazine dropped at the crime scene. Uh, I'm assuming they're talking about like an ammunition magazine and not like a people magazine. Okay, I'm, I'm glad you cleared that up because <laughs> I was like, was he reading manga? Like what's, what's going on? Uh, so the, the fingerprint matched those of 17-year-old Lee Boyd Malvo, who had been previously arrested in Washington state. Also, that's crazy that you, at age of 17, like you've, you've already got a rap sheet. That's what I was thinking too. I was like 17 and yep. you're possibly this person who's going around killing innocent people. Mm -hmm. So the arrest record for Malvo provided another lead mentioning a man named John Allen Muhammad, who was 42 years old at the time. Also, like the, the fact that it's like a 42 year old and a 17 year old hanging out, I feel like that's, that is not a, not a kosher friendship. Right. Um, that's, that's just very off putting. Right. I, I don't like that. And later it comes to light that, that Muhammad was basically mentoring this kid in a life of crime. And it's, really, really sad because at 17, you think you should have your whole life ahead of you and, you know, anything is possible. You know, you're deciding what you want to do with your life, but instead he's teamed up with this, this guy who has got the absolute worst intentions. So the, the name, uh, John Allen Muhammad, was recognized by an agent in the Tacoma FBI office from a tip that had been called in. In collaboration with the ATF, it was determined that Muhammad had a Bushmaster 223 rifle, which matched the ballistics of the sniper killings. This was also a violation of his restraining order uh, that his ex-wife had against him, uh, which made that a federal weapons violation. So the FBI finally had their way to take the killers down. So that was kind of like, we've got the paperwork on this. We're like, there's no way you're gonna get at, wiggle out of this. We've got a reason to bring you in. Yeah, that's great that they had that, um, the restriction of him having a weapon in the, um, ex-wife's uh, protection orders because, mm -hmm. I mean, that's how they grabbed them, right? That's Yeah, that was yeah. A, a really key part of being able to kind of nail him down. And sort of like one of those things where like you kind of have to get them on like the, the nitty gritty like technical things that are absolutely undeniable in order to nab them for the bigger things. The description of Muhammad's 1990 blue Chevy Caprice with New Jersey license plates was broadcast to law enforcement and the public on October 22nd. And on October 24th, Muhammad and Malvo were captured at a rest area off Interstate 70 near Myersville, Maryland. So 
there's that that finally that key thing locked in there that description of that vehicle matched his vehicle they knew they had the right person so one man whitney donahue of greencastle pennsylvania noticed the car at the rest stop and called authorities his tip later led to a big payoff he was awarded $150,000 for helping lead to the capture of the snipers. That is awesome. Right? I think that is so cool to like it's sort of like the you know, does anybody ever get those rewards? You wonder sometimes cuz a lot of times for big cases that there's like huge reward money. Um I'm really glad to see that you know, this savvy person who like very well could have been really scared or or maybe questioned whether it's the right vehicle or not. Um, but he went with his gut and it paid off big time. And who knows how many lives he saved by calling this tip in. And yes. uh, I mean, it sounds, it definitely seems like everyone in those communities wanted an end to it. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure as soon as he was like, that's the car I saw, like he did not hesitate, you know, like second guess or anything. Right. So when the SWAT team converged on the scene, they found a Bushmaster 223 weapon and a bipod, which is an attachment used to stabilize a, a weapon, which allowed them greater accuracy when carrying out their attacks. Uh, it was also discovered that the Chevy Caprice had been retrofitted so that a person could lay down in the back and use a small opening that had been cut out near the license plate to shoot their victims. In effect, it was a sniper's nest on wheels. So thankfully, they are taken into custody without incident. Um, it was very interesting to read how they, they kind of uh, blocked off the the entrance and the exit to this rest area because that's the really it's like they couldn't have been caught at a better place because there's only one way in and one way out for a rest stop and uh, they had even commandeered a, a semi-truck um, so some very nice uh, semi-truck driver helped block the way um, to make sure that that um, these guys couldn't get get away, um, so they were really and it was it was perfect because they could block it like further down the ramp, and they would have no idea that there was any kind of operation going on around them. Uh, so until they were ready to strike. Yeah, but I mean, you usually don't linger at a rest area too long, so. They I'm... were sleeping in the car. Okay. So they were like, okay. They were taking a break. Yeah. A long-term break. So we were all just very, very fortunate to see that that come out the way that it did. So they were taken into custody without incident. Um, but while they were imprisoned, the big question loomed, why? Malvo had written of jihad against the United States. Um, you know, he made a lot of like crazy references to like Osama bin Laden and Saddam Hussein. Um, but when 
it was Muhammad's turn to go on trial, Malvo testified that their plan was to kidnap children, extort money from the government, and then to train kids to terrorize cities with the goal of shutting things down across the United States. So they had this crazy idea that they were gonna like, I, I think they were later on, they said they were going to um, like pick up kids, like orphanages and stuff. And they were gonna escape to Canada and they were gonna have like a training camp. It just seemed like the most bonkers, crazy plan. And not only does it seem crazy, but uh, if your plan is to kidnap children, why are you going around just shooting people? Why aren't you going around abducting children? Yeah, it's it all does not seem to fit together. I could understand like if you're shooting adults that are with children, because then you can swoop in and take the kid away. Mm-hmm. But this is just it does not match their MO does not match their crimes. Yeah, it really is just it almost seems like a, an afterthought of like, I don't know. It's really hard to explain the unexplainable like this. Uh, So anyway, Muhammad was put on trial for murder, terrorism, conspiracy, and the illegal use of a firearm and faced the death penalty in Virginia. Malvo was also uh, tried for murder and weapons charges and both men were found guilty on all charges. Malvo was sentenced to life in prison without parole and Muhammad was sentenced to death. Wait, this was 2002? Yes. Were they tried in DC or Virginia or Maryland, do you know? I believe this was, um, oh, I remember reading this. Uh, So because of the interstate nature of the case, um, it was federal charges and Uh, John Ashcroft, who I believe was the attorney, I think he was attorney general. That's what it was. Okay. Um, So he had the case tried in Virginia because Virginia had the the harshest penalties for, uh, because they they had the death penalty. Yeah, that's, that's why I brought this up because I was surprised that it was 2002 and I was thinking like DC where it's more like progressive. Uh, I was was like, he got the death penalty, but that makes sense if he was under Virginia law. Yeah, we got to the sentencing there. So in addition to the criminal trial, the victims and the families of those killed filed, um, and not all of them, but some of them, they filed a civil lawsuit that included the gun shop in Tacoma, which is called Bullseye Shooter Supply, which I didn't realize that till I read it out loud. It rhymes like, oh, what a cutesy gun store name. (laughs) Bullseye Shooter Supply. Uh, But that gun shop was in Tacoma, Washington. And that was the gun shop that sold the gun to Muhammad. And uh, Muhammad was not legally supposed to have a gun because of the restraining order. Uh, for his ex-wife. They also filed a lawsuit against Bushmaster Firearms, 
who continued to provide guns to the shop despite multiple record keeping violations. So the gun company knew that this place was basically not keeping good records on who was walking out of the store with these guns. So there were, it was actually uh, found that hundreds of guns from this single gun shop were walking out the door with no record of sale, um, just like absolute poor record keeping. Um, and so the fact, and, and that the Bushmaster kept giving them more guns to sell despite knowing this. Um, so eventually the gun shop and the manufacturer settled out of court for $2 million and $500,000 respectively, which still doesn't really seem like enough. And granted, the in interviews with some of the plaintiffs, they, they said that this isn't about money, this is about sending a message and the message is being heard loud and clear. Yeah, like, I think the more fitting punishment for that crime is that the gun shop owner had to close and would not be allowed to sell guns or ammunition ever again. And then the corporation that was supplying these guns, knowing that they're going into hands of people that legally could not own them, uh, much, 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 much higher fine and possible restrictions on where and how they can distribute their weapons. Right. It's the, there needs to be teeth behind this, um, like real repercussions. Uh, it, it, it did say that the, the owner of the gun shop, I believe transferred ownership of the the shop over to to somebody else so i i don't know if it's still around but it's uh no longer in the same hands which is good because it's like if this is how you run your business like you do not you do not deserve to be handling this kind of merchandise i agree and um oh and also bushmaster they, in, in the wake of this, they changed some of their, um, their policies, I guess, on, on how to, um, or I guess that they provided more training to their uh, sellers on how to avoid this kind of situation, I believe. I, I, so that there was some education involved on their end to their dealers about how to properly sell their sell the weapons and deal with the merchandise so i at least they took it seriously and that they're doing some things on their end to hopefully prevent other gun stores from doing the same mistake mm -hmm. so also in this time more crimes were connected to the pair fleshing out a two-man crime wave that spanned even more of the country than their shooting spree had. They were tied to killings and shootings in East Tacoma, Washington, Tucson, Arizona, Hammond, Louisiana, Clinton, Maryland, Montgomery, Alabama, and Baton Rouge, Louisiana. 
So their web of chaos spread way farther than previously thought. And those are just the ones that we know about. On November 10th, 2009, Muhammad was executed after failing to attain clemency from Virginia Governor Tim Kaine or a stay of his execution from the Supreme Court. When asked if he had any last words, Muhammad made no reply. 27 people witnessed the execution, including family members of the victims killed by Muhammad and his accomplice. But Malvo's case still isn't over. He's been in prison this whole time, but in 2018, a federal appeals court agreed that four of Malvo's life sentences from Virginia must be vacated because of a 2012 Supreme Court decision that stated that it is unconstitutional for juveniles to receive mandatory life sentences without the possibility of parole. In 2019, the Supreme Court agreed to take up the case. And in 2020, they dismissed the case after the Virginia governor signed a law granting the possibility of parole after 20 years for any juveniles sentenced to life. So I guess the problem was that being sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole was unconstitutional. But if there is a possibility for parole, then the argument is moot, I guess. So they changed the law in Virginia. So the Supreme Court was like, there we go. We're, we don't need to discuss this further because they already addressed the constitutional issue. Uh, so he will be eligible for parole in the state of Virginia in 2022, but he still has a life sentence in the state of Maryland that still stands. So good. I don't think he's going anywhere anytime soon. No, I don't think he'd get paroled either. Not in such a high, highly known case. You hear about some pretty terrible people that do get paroled, but it's also, those are always cases that like you've never heard of. Right. Whereas this, I mean, anyone, uh, you know, like our age and older remember yeah. this. Mm -hmm. So if they were to parole him, there'd be an absolute like unrest from the American people. Right. And, 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 you know, there are so many families that have been affected by this. Like they deserve peace of mind that this person is paying their debt to society for what they did. So today Malvo sits in prison despite apologies and revelations over the years. In 2012, he revealed that Muhammad had sexually abused him and he had also admitted to lying early on about always being the trigger man in an attempt to save Muhammad from the death penalty as he understood that it would be much more difficult to put a minor to death. All in all though, it seems that Malvo was a pawn in Muhammad's destructive game. As far as the victims go, there are 10 families with irreplaceable losses and even more families that suffer the trauma and health side effects in the wake of their brush with the snipers. A memorial was set up in Brookside Gardens in Wheaton, Maryland, as well as another one 
in the government plaza of Rockville, Maryland. So there are, um, and there are also, I think some individual markers too for uh, some of the individual victims. Um, but yeah, that is a scar that is forever on the community. And um, yeah, it, I, like I said, I don't think Malvo is going anywhere anytime soon. I mean, I'm glad that he's kind of like that he's even sent out apologies to some of his victims, but it's- I mean, yeah, that sounds good, but I, I would like to believe that they are true apologies or is mm -hmm. it just attempts to make him look good and like he's reformed. So when parole comes up, he has a better chance. Right, uh, it's hard to say and yeah, no knows? one knows except for him. Mm -hmm. He's the only one that knows if those apologies are truthful. So that is the tale of the 2002 DC snipers. Well, nice job covering it. You did a really good job. Thank you. Um, I know this one was, it was very hard to know how much to put in because I would love to have put in more details about every single victim, but I'm like, oh my gosh, if I, if I went into every single person, we'd be here all day. I mean, this is already going to be maybe one of our longer episodes. Right. Um, but yeah, yeah. Like we could do a series if we were going to go into everyone. So I think you did a really good job at condensing it down. That was it was a nice, nice listen, even though it's not like a nice story. Right. Thank you. Uh, yeah. And again, this is an area that I really love. I mean, I love um, the DC area and it's, it's very interesting to discover um, kind of the, the hidden stories that are everywhere uh, in these places that are familiar to me. So maybe next time I go out that way, I will have to pay a visit, maybe pay some respects to, I would love to see the, there was some pictures of that. Um, there's like a reflection, almost like garden type and type thing. I, I think at the Wheaton, Maryland Memorial. Okay. It looked really beautiful and it sounds, it looks like it'd be a very nice place to pay respects to these innocent victims that um, that were just living their lives. Yeah, yeah, that's true. You, I mean, yeah, I definitely think you should next time out there. And maybe I will as well, because uh, my husband lived there for five, four or five years. And oh, wow. Um, yeah, so maybe we'll next time we're out there visiting friends, I'll definitely go there as well. Um, and like last week's case, um, I, I will be spending more time in Austin in my future. So I definitely want to go to the yogurt shop scene yeah. the memorial and just leave, leave something as a sign of respect and to pay tribute yeah. to victims. Yeah. Um, oh, I should list off my sources here at the end. Um, findagrave.com was actually very helpful in uh, some little details about some of the victims. 
Um, there was an LA Times article, Killing in DC is linked to Same Sniper by Lisa Getter and Jonathan Peterson. Um, FBI.gov had a really great informative uh, article, uh, Famous Cases, Beltway Snipers. Uh, that was super fascinating read. Uh, I also watched uh, ABC News coverage from October 10th, 2002, Sniper Terrorizes DC. The Washington Post, uh, there were a couple articles from them. Um, Sniper Victim Prayed God Would Not Let Me Die by Josh White, and that's from October 29th, 2003. And then there was also another one False Sniper Witness is Sentenced to Jail by Maria Glad on January 8th, 2003. Uh, there's also a couple of things from CNN.com and the Associated Press uh, that were also very helpful. So that's the kind of the cool thing about these modern cases is that there's a ton of articles, modern news coverage you can actually watch the news broadcasts. Um, so that was very, very helpful in my research. So there we go. I think we covered all of our uh, bases. Yes. <laughs> our uh, research bases there. Yes. Yeah. It's like, what are those things in baseball called? Um, yeah. It's in the name of the sport. Uh huh. <laughs> Um, all righty. Well, um, we're here. We're at the end, everybody. I just want to thank you all again for coming, coming back to us every week. And uh, we look forward to your ratings and reviews. They're always lovely. So, and send us a message. We like it when people say hi. So absolutely say shoot, hello anytime. Shoot us an email, darkanddeviouspodcast at gmail.com. And until next week, bye. bye.